You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, brought to you by Studio 420, a cannabis-friendly marketing agency. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, marketing director for Studio 420. After working for 15 years in a VA hospital treating many veterans whose health and wellness had been compromised by alcohol abuse, Dr. Jordan Tischler, a Harvard-educated medical doctor, started to explore cannabis medicine as an alternative treatment. Today, he is a cannabis activist and practicing cannabinoid specialist. He went off to start Inhale MD, where he and his team treat patients through cannabis therapeutics. And he is the president of the Association of Cannabis Specialists. I learned so much talking to Dr. Tischler. Let's meet him. Thank you for coming on the podcast. This is pretty, pretty exciting. Awesome. Thank you so much. You know, read some of your stuff. And I've been really curious to, to kind of dive into the 65-plus elderly group because it's such an obviously a big market for us to tap into but also just in the the medical you know medical sense so so okay yeah let's get started um i guess the first question is i'm just wondering who is the older adult group seeking relief um from marijuana you know is there a general age group you know demographic their former professions you know, gender, education, is this just some all around? uh... You know, it's a great question. I would say that there isn't a lot of um, sort of defining demographics. I have patients, um, I mean, I think my youngest patient was seven or eight and I've had my oldest patient was 104. Um, Yeah. uh, 104? 104. Unfortunately, you know, not surprisingly, I suppose she didn't live very long. So I didn't, you know, I got to take care of her for only a couple of years. But um, yeah, that was pretty impressive. And I've had a small handful in their 90s, you know, and larger handfuls in their 80s and 70s. Um, Mostly people in that age group are coming for a combination of symptoms. Pain management is, is certainly number one. Um, and insomnia is another, uh, two things that I think cannabis really not only does pretty well, but also where conventional medications don't do all that well. Um, uh, there's also a, a, a fair bit of anxiety and a smaller bit of depression that fall in, in those uh, groups. And then there's sort of an overlapping group, which are patients who have cancer um, that that tends to skew a little bit younger. I've got, you know, the, the, the mostly 40s and 50-year-olds who have cancer, and then obviously some older folks too. I've got some 25-year-olds with cancer. That's very, very unfortunate. Mm. Um, uh, you know, in, in terms of um, education and economic background, my patient population spans the gamut. Um, I've got folks who you know made that at a high school and then i have people who are judges and lawyers and physicians and and nurses etc um and in terms of the economics we offer a lower rate for people who are um have uh the medicaid equivalent here in massachusetts so we've got a a, a significant handful of those folks also um 
I do think that there is a little bit of a skew towards white people, which I find concerning. Um, And possibly because people of color are so used to doing it on their own um, that the idea of seeking medical attention for this sort of thing just maybe isn't in their cultural lexicon the same way. Uh, or maybe it is that they just don't feel as empowered to reach out for medical care. I really don't have a handle on that. I've just sort of noted that, I mean, it's not to say that I don't have uh, patients of color in my practice, but as a percentage, uh, they're lower than the percentages of, of people of color in our society. And I've noted that, and I'm just not sure what it means and what I should be doing about it. I didn't even think about that as it, when I was thinking about the demographics at that, but that is a shame, but hopefully once people get more educated, you know, once the education is really out there on the mass level, maybe that will change. I hope so. And I also yeah. hope that it isn't just because I'm perceived as, you know, uh, a white dude, uh, that, that that would be, you know, putting people off. Um, I tend to be, I don't think of myself as a white dude, uh, but you know, I'm certain that people look at me and perceive me that way. Right, uh, right. And I hope that if people are considering to come to my practice, that that they look beyond that and get to know me. And I, I try to be pretty reasonable and down to earth guy when I can be. Um, so, you know, we'll, well see how that evolves. How did you, um, I, I know that, it, it, you know, cannabis medicine is not taught, taught in medical schools. No. How did you get into cannabis medicine and start a practice? Well, you know, it was sort of an evolution. Um, So my training, my background is as conventional as it gets, right? So I went to Harvard College a million years ago. Then I went to medical school at Harvard Medical School. And I trained in internal medicine at a Harvard hospital. So I always insert the joke here, which is that we say, if you make it through Harvard three times over, we call you preparation age. And, you know, I I always kind of, because I think, you know, look, if people say, oh my God, he's so Harvard, this Harvard, that he must be an ass, you know, Uh, I might be, but I try not to be. Um, And, you know, so I think a little levity is where is appropriate under the circumstances. Um, So then after all this Harvard, blah, 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 I went out and I practiced emergency medicine for about 20 some odd years. Um, And the last 15 of those years were at the VA hospital. Um, And what I realized sort of over time was that I had seen, you know, vast numbers of veterans whose health and wellness had been compromised by substances. And quite frankly, when I say substances, what I really mean is on the top 10 list, it was alcohol one through nine. You know, maybe a tiny little of opioids and benzos, but really it's alcohol, alcohol, alcohol. And I got very good at taking care of these folks, not because I wanted to, but because they were sick, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then in sort of 2011, Massachusetts started talking about medical cannabis reform. And like I think most other doctors, I said, medical cannabis? What do you mean? But really what happened was I said, you know, if cannabis could be used as a medicine, it certainly seems safe enough given the fact that I've never seen anybody sick from cannabis, right? I mean, I've seen guys sick from all these other substances, but not cannabis. So 
all right, if the safety is better than say alcohol, for example, then let me look into all of this stuff, you know, and let's see if there's any science here. And you can remember back then, and not so much different now, people would say things like, oh, there's no data, there's no science. And I said, well, let me look for myself. So I went over to PubMed, which is the Google for science, yep. and I put in the word cannabis. And then I got a return of 25,000 studies. And I'm like, not only does that mean that there are not no data, but how the hell am I going to make sense out of 25,000 studies? And being a glutton for punishment, I guess, I actually started reading this stuff and sort of spent several years kind of, and pun intended, weeding my way through this. Because, you know, one of the things is, yeah, there are 25,000 studies, but most of them were junk. Mm. Um, and then a lot of them were looking for harms. And the interesting thing is, you know what, on the harm side, yeah, there are some risks. But then again, there are risks with all medicines. So, and there's, there was nothing that sort of was a showstopper to me. Mm -hmm. And then we started to look at some of the, the benefits and trying to figure out which of these studies was done well enough that we could rely upon it. And I kind of came away with the impression that, number one, we don't know everything, but we knew enough to be able to make some reasonable science-based decisions. And that cannabis or cannabinoids, like every medication, could be used well or not well. And that if you use them well, you can expect benefits. And if you use them poorly, then all health can break loose. But to me, that seems just like medicine. Like, you know, I could give you a blood pressure medication. And if you have high blood pressure, hopefully that helps you. If you start with low blood pressure and I give you a blood pressure medication, I'm going to make you very sick. Right. right. So yeah. we have, have to be thoughtful about it, but that's what we doctors are trained and paid to do. So mm -hmm. to me, it didn't seem like a big stretch. Okay, sure, we're talking about plant material. But then again, many of our medications, even if they're now made as a pharmaceutical came from plants, Taxol, which is a, a, a chemotherapy drug, very important in the treatment of breast cancer, um, comes from the yew tree. And in fact, it's a terpene, you know, um, oh. digitalis, which is a medicine we don't use very much anymore, but was very important throughout the last 200 years of medicine comes from, uh, you know, a flower, um, foxglove. I was like, I'm blanking on the name foxglove, you know? And so there are all sorts and, and the list goes on and you know, obviously penicillin comes from mold and blah, blah, blah. So the point is that the natural world has always been the best source for our medications. And then Hopefully we learn something from plants or fungi or whatever, and then we can perfect it and test the safety and all of that sort of stuff. And I think that's ultimately where cannabis and cannabinoid medicines will go. We're just at the beginning of that journey in large measure because we've spent the last 70 years denying it. Right. Um, but once we get past that, also if we don't ruin it with legalization, then um, we're going to start to get that data that that we really want and to refine the products. And maybe we get a little bit away from the plant itself, but that's okay because it's taught us what we need to know for us to then be able to kind of go the next steps thereafter. Right. Wow. So, yeah. you know, when I, sorry, no, when yeah, I, when I got finished with all of this background research, I thought to myself, 
well, isn't it lovely that I've learned all of this stuff, but what am I going to do with it? Right. And then I, then the boy scout comes out, right. Then I'm like, well, so gee, now I know something. So I kind of feel compelled to like do something with this knowledge as a doctor. Right. Exactly. And then you can imagine what my boss uh, looked like at the VA. I mean, the poor guy literally turned green and actually the whole discussion of what I was doing, not through the VA, but on, you know, in my own time, went all the way up the chain of command to legal counsel in DC, where mm -hmm. they said, well, look, you know, whatever he's doing on his own time is his business. And I, and that was the best possible. You have to remember at the time, there was still a gag order on VA physicians, so you couldn't talk about it. Um, and I can remember some very uncomfortable situations in the ED where the patient obviously would have benefited and I wasn't allowed to say anything about it. And that was very uncomfortable, but oh. that, that led me to, sorry, look, where, where else can I kind of uh, do this medicine? And you look at say the other Harvard hospitals where I was still faculty and you realize that the federal government provides 90% of their revenue, uh, both through supporting training programs and through Medicare and Medicaid, et cetera. Um, and the government is very clever. It has a rule that says that if you violate federal law in one area, we can take away your funding, not just for that thing, but for everything. Mm. So you take a hospital like the, the, the Mass General and you know, you know, that's bringing in billions of dollars every year and suddenly with one transgression, now they get nothing, right? And you say, well, you know, look at them. They're just a big hospital and they're making all this money, but they take care of you know, hundreds of thousands of patient visits per year. So there's a responsibility not to screw that up. You yes. can start to see why these institutions are in fact, very, very conservative about this. Mm -hmm. You can't blame them because you can't take the risk to shut down the healthcare for an entire, you know, state. And it's just complicated. Right, no, I know, yes. And also being in the Northeast, we were not, you know, I'm, I'm in New York City, we're, I mean, this is all just happening now, really, for us. So, you know, we had we had the barriers. We were not out in the West Coast where, you know. I think that there's there's some advantages there. You know, I think that the West Coast certainly went first. Um, and so they have some experience and such, but it's become such a, how do I even put this? It, it, it's become so loose on the West Coast that I have patients call me from the West Coast saying, I can get anything you tell me to get, but I don't know what to do. I don't know what to get. I don't know how to use it. And there's nobody here that I can ask. And that in and of itself is, is terrible, right? I mean, mm -hmm. access, one of the things in the, in the cannabis lobbying space, which is really interesting to me, is that there's been a lot of focus on access to this stuff as a medicine but almost no emphasis on access to knowledge and, and medical care to go with it. If I told you, uh, you know, go down to the store and get yourself some blood pressure medicine, you'd say, but doc, which one? And what's it going to do for me? And what are the consequences? And how do I get it? And how do I use it? And all that sort of stuff. And, and frankly, we, we just sort of abdicated all of that really important guidance and care 
into the hands of a 20 year old whose knowledge base, quite frankly, and I don't mean to be insulting, is basically, I like to smoke weed too. Right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. People we can are, do better than that. Yeah, we can do better than that. So are, are you treating people across the country? Are you able to do that? Well, I can't prescribe. I can't prescribe for them, right? So, if you're in California, I can't write you a medical card in California. On the other hand, in California, it's on every street corner. So, assuming that we can get a safe product, we don't really need the card per se. But what we do need, and what I can do, is I can give that kind of guidance and 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 advice. And so, yes, I do that. You know, across the country and frankly around the world, because unfortunately, at the moment, there aren't there aren't enough docs who know what I know and do what I do. I'm working very hard on changing that. Um, I know. There's, I mean, how many people know? It's not even taught. I, it, it isn't even yet a curriculum in medical school yet, I don't think, right? Um, there are to... a few that are sort of edging up to it. Um, mostly there are university level programs that are not at medical schools, um, but that are, you know, at a business school or in the school pharmacy, the medical schools, I think, are not surprisingly going to be the last to this party. Uh, I had some very interesting discussion with the Medical College of Georgia uh, that seemed to have some appetite, and then they sort of seemed to lose the appetite, which was too bad. Mm. Um, my own institution, Harvard Medical School, um, the last time I asked, which was admittedly a few years ago, they didn't really have the appetite for me to uh, to do this as part of the medical school curriculum. But what I have, uh, to their credit, been able to do is put together a not yet released uh, continuing medical education program aimed at doctors, uh, not people who are going to do what I do, but rather, you know, primary care folk and neurologists and, you know, the frontline people where they need to understand what it can do and what it can't do and what are the risks and what are those benefits and and to be able to have a a intelligent and thoughtful conversation with their patients that might then lead to a referral to somebody like myself for for the details but it it, it has to start with with my colleagues knowing enough to start that conversation and do you find the general interest uh, amongst your colleagues or, you know, just uh, the positive, like they want to find out more about it? Maybe they're too busy. They don't have the time. Is it? You got little, it. That's it. They're just too busy, and, but they're trying to learn and trying to get a grasp on it. Absolutely. Um, you know, patients and, and advocates have often asked me sort of worriedly, well, what if my pa my doctor doesn't believe in this or doesn't? Or, or what if they're negative about it? Yeah, there are some folks like that, no question, some docs like that. But my experience sort of across the nation is that I met with interest. Look, maybe this stuff can help my patients. That's a really good starting point. And the reality is, is that one of the consequences of the California legalization in 1996 was that that the physician were involved, but they were just sort of involved as a gatekeeper. Yes, no, yes, no, that kind of thing. Mm, mm -hmm. And that's not really good for patient care. But it also had led to this idea that the primary care folks would be involved. 
at whatever level was necessary, whether it was yes, no, or, or something deeper. And that's just not, it's not um, feasible. When we look at the life of a primary care physician, they get somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes with each of their patients. That's not because they, they don't want to spend more time. It's because that's what the hospital will allow because that's what the reimbursement will allow, mm -hmm. right? So in that 10, 15 minutes, they've got to cover, you know, blood pressure and breast exam and pap smears and, you know, bicycle helmets and seat belts and you name it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. they've got to fit all uh, cholesterol. I mean, like there are just a, a wide range of topics that somehow have to get fixed into 10 minutes. I think that's untenable. <laughs> and you can see that patients aren't happy and the doctors aren't happy. But then if you want to sort of shoehorn into that same space, a discussion of cannabis, which is uh, less in their bailiwick than many of these other fields, I, I think that's just, you know, they're going to look at that and go, it's, it's a non-starter. I can't do it. Um, so that's what led me to this idea of the cannabinoid specialist right? Mm. Is somebody like myself who can spend an hour, not 10 minutes, an hour. And all I need to do is talk to the patient about what's going on that has led them to the, you know, the thought that cannabinoids could be helpful to them and then get into how do we do it and, and all that stuff. So I think that, you know, in many ways, it's just like, um, you know, diabetes, most primary care doctors now can handle diabetes, but there was a time when that was always left to the specialist. And there's still times now when there's just more, more detail to get into that will fit in that allotted time. And so sending somebody to the endocrinologist gets them uh, you know, a different kind of access and, and deeper knowledge, et cetera. And I think that that's kind of where we are in, in cannabinoid medicine is that the beginning of the discussion is something that should happen at the primary care level, but then, you know, to really get into it and to monitor it and to follow closely and make sure that the outcomes are good, it, it just requires somebody who knows more and also has more time on their hands to devote. Right. And that, it, takes, that's it takes, you know, it takes a lot to dive into it because people don't even know, I mean, medical professionals don't even know really endocannabinoid system, really, what does that really mean? Is there a, a specific, I mean, you were mentioning earlier, um, anxiety, sleep, cancer, you're really treating cancer? Is that okay. for nausea, Well, so, all right, let, let's, let's dive a little bit on cannabis and cancer, rather. There's a whole lot of discussion out there about cannabis as the treatment for the, for the cancer itself. And there's some very interesting science behind that all of which, however, has been done in a test tube or in a mouse. And there is no universe in which test tubes and mice represent human beings. So for the patients who are um, thinking about cannabis as a way to treat the cancer itself, that, I think that that's not, not where to focus at this point. Um, mm -hmm. I've certainly had patients who say, look, I've done everything that I can do in the conventional medical arena. Um, and I want to feel like I've really thrown the kitchen sink at this cancer so that whatever happens, I know I've done everything that I can do. And so will you help me do that? 
And I will say, yes, so long as you understand the risks and the benefits and how unproven this is, yes, I will go there with you. But what I, you know, but, but I need to lay out for them beforehand the lack of understanding and science there. But mostly what I'm talking about when we're talking about cancer is symptom management, right? So people who get cancer get a whole range of things as a result of that cancer. Symptom management. Right. Okay, that's the key. So right. okay. insomnia and anxiety and depression and possibly pain from the cancer or pain from the chemotherapy or the surgery. I mean, so the process of treating cancer is monumental um, and it creates issues related to the treatment. And then there are issues related to simply the diagnosis. And all of those things are things that I think are well treated with cannabis or cannabinoids. Mm, right. I guess it's the basic things that symptoms that we're all suffering that you can really see cannabis helping, you know, the sleep, the anxiety, depression, and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's just I'm cancer just... Is sort of the mother of all reasons to have all of those other things, right? Right. So do you think that um, in the future, there will be, uh, so as our bodies get older, and homeostasis is thrown off, and we're all getting all these diseases popping up, you know, in our 50s, 60s, and onward, do you think it could be a preventative medicine to keep, uh, to keep us in homeostasis? Is cannabinoid dysfunction, why all that stuff starts popping up? You know, I think that this, there's, there has been this theory put out largely by lay people more so than by scientists that, that various diseases are a result of, or possibly also just cause these sort of dysfunction or deficiency of our endocannabinoids. And it sounds reasonable. So I wouldn't say, no, this isn't, that isn't right. But we don't really have any evidence to support those theories. Um, and, and there have been some attempts to look for evidence, and those studies have been negative, meaning they have not found the evidence to support that. So at the moment, I think we don't really know whether cannabis or cannabinoids are going to be useful sort of in that preventive fashion. Um, people talk about as being neuroprotective. And again, it, there's evidence for neuroprotection at the cellular level in a test tube. But when we start to look at, you know, if we give cannabinoids of a certain type to somebody who has early stage Parkinson's, you mentioned, and follow them, does that sort of seem to slow down or stop the rate of, of progression? And the answer so far has been no. Um, so I think that at the moment, what we can say is that it's very useful for treating the symptoms of illness that come along, but the idea of taking cannabinoids to sort of prevent something that might happen, I just don't think we've got that. We're not that far. We're not that far. And it may turn out the answer is no. I mean, the preliminary evidence suggests no, but, mm -hmm. uh, but I think we need, you know, there's just so much left to be studied here that, oh. that it's fascinating. And, you know, if anybody's listening, who's thinking about whether they should or shouldn't go into science, go into science, if that's your aptitude, because there's a lot to be discovered still. 
Oh, it's I know it seems it seems so exciting and so promising. Um, so um, what so what are the methods of consumption that you treat patients with? Well, it's a really oh, typically. Or? Yeah, no, there there very is much is you know, and I think that again on the on the lay side of things on the more recreational side of things, there's sort of this, you know, just go down to the store and buy a whole lot of stuff and see what you like kind of attitude that I think really misses the boat uh, from a medical perspective and from sort of a broader perspective is very good for the, uh, for the cannabis businesses, not necessarily so good for, for that individual. Uh, so I definitely believe that we can, uh, you know, kind of get to the right answer more quickly and more cost effectively by taking sort of a structured medical approach. Um, and, and, you know, on the recreational side, there's always this sort of like, what's the new stuff? What's new and exciting? Oh, look, we've got these cannabis seltzer or whatever. And I'm thinking, you know, that's, that's lovely, but that's not really a, a very useful medical product. And the problem, getting back to your question, is that medicine not just cannabis medicine, but sort of medicine overall, it, it's dull, right? It's boring. It's hard to, you know, make a sound bite or an exciting advertisement, right? Because mm -hmm. most medicines are little white pills. And if they're doing their job properly, you take them and then you forget about it. And you, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not on your mind. It, it should do what it needs to do and get out of the way. And cannabis medicine is not unlike that either. So I tend to break down my thinking around the approach to using cannabis into inhalation versus oral. And inhalation has many different ways to approach it, some of which are better than others. Um, but the, the first question is, okay, why or when are we opting for inhalation versus the oral? And I would imagine that many of your listeners sort of have this intuitive understanding from their own experience that inhaled cannabis is rapid acting. Uh, again, mm -hmm. if you go to the internet, people will say it's immediate. And I think that number one, that's wrong. But number two, it's a little dangerous because for people who don't have experience, they can sort of think, well, if it's immediate, then I should be feeling something already. And they can take a lot of puffs on whatever they're using and end up getting an overdose that way. So I tell people, look, it, it, it's quick, but it's not immediate. So 10 to 15 minutes is what you should be thinking. And that's, that's very helpful. That's very rapid compared to many conventional medications. And it's also relatively short in its duration. It wears off in about three or four hours. So that makes inhalation a really great approach to problems that are either acute in nature or episodic in nature. And the classic example that I give is a migraine type headache. That's what I was thinking when you said that. Okay. Right. Yeah. So we don't know when it's coming. When, it's, when it does come, it's hell on wheels. And we also know from the conventional medical side that we can get a hold of and, and, and make better that headache if we intervene sooner rather than later, right? And that if we wait too long, it tends to get out of control and then our medicines don't really work very well. So we wanna be able to get in there at sort of first inkling of trouble and that's where inhalation comes in, rapid onset. 
The other thing is, frankly, if we do make the headache better, then we'd like that once the headache has gone away, we'd like our medicine to go away, right? Meaning the, the, the side effects, namely being intoxicated. So again, cannabis by inhalation for this indication is a great approach. Now, let's take a moment to sort of dive down into what I mean by inhalation, right? So inhalation really kind of comes down to three things. There's smoking, there's vaping, and then there's a flower mm. vaporizer, right? So mm. smoking, you take your cannabis and you put it in a bong or a joint or something like that, and you light it on fire and you inhale the smoke. And we know that cannabis smoke contains many of the same toxic chemicals and small particles that we see in tobacco smoke. It's also interesting that the science on cannabis smoking shows that it's not, it doesn't appear that people get the same illnesses from smoking cannabis as they would from smoking tobacco. So how do we reconcile this? Well, I would say, look, if we didn't have any other choices, then we'd be stuck with smoking, but we have other choices. So my recommendation is don't smoke, right? We don't mm -hmm. have to. Why expose ourselves to these things? Mm -hmm. So then there are the other two. There's the vape pen, right? The little oil cartridge thing. And that seems like a good idea. Certainly New York State kind of tried to say, well, we don't want people to smoke, so we'll go with these vape pens. Turns out the vape pens are a disaster. Um, not only can you inhale the oil, which is damaging to your lungs, but the vape pens aren't very sophisticated, so they burn the oil, and now we're inhaling burning oil, which is full of carcinogens. And then on top of that, this January, we got a study that showed, oh, by the way, there are a bunch of heavy metals that are in the construction of those cartridges that then leach out into the, the cannabis oil, and we inhale that as well. So we've got all kinds of toxins coming out of those vape pens. So I recommend those to nobody. Wow, I didn't know that. I, I mean, you've heard the different studies back and forth, but I, I never heard a professional opinion on that. Wow. The okay, more we learn about those devices, the more they, the, the worse they seem. Now, this is a technology problem. I am not saying that we couldn't have a better vape pen. It's just that since nobody knows that how bad they are, People are buying them left and right. And um, if they're buying them, the companies aren't going to invest in the R&D to improve them. So we've got that's, that kind of economic issue going on. And that's why we need more cannabinoid specialists mm. to monitor this stuff and tell us this, not just you trying to run, the, <laughs> tell, educate the world. I mean, it, it's that's just one more good reason that we need. And I, I really like cannabinoid specialists versus Pot doc? Cannabis doctor. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, pot doc. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that should be a distinction. Yeah, you know, when I was early in this field, I met uh, somebody who's the CEO of a dispensary group, and he spent a lot of time sort of trying to convince me that it was okay to be a pot doc and that I should just sort of accept that my role was just to write cards, and I, I utterly reject yeah. that. Um, right, right. There's, oh my gosh, please. <laughs> we, we need people like you. Thank you. Um, so we, talk, we yeah. told everybody not to smoke and not to use the vape pen. So let's tell them what they should be using. Um, oh, yes. There are devices out there that take cannabis flower, right? And not all of them are equally good, but the concept of the class of these things is it's not that it takes flowers, just that's what they do at the moment. What the what makes them special is that they have a little microprocessor in them that's constantly measuring the temperature to you know that you're heating the cannabis to 
And so we can set that to 350 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the ideal temperature at which point we are getting the medicine without combusting anything. So we're not getting any of those toxins. And that's the kind of device that we need. It's, it's a sophisticated device and it, it, it's more like a medical device in that way. And that way we know we're getting our medicine. And furthermore, we can use those devices to figure out the dose. And the dose is the key to getting this to work properly for us, right? Right. You know, with edibles orally, you know, if you have a five milligram gummy, we know that it's five milligrams. So the dosing becomes a lot easier in that regard. There are other issues around timing. Um, remember I was saying that there's an either or proposition. So inhalation being rapid and short works best for those episodic or acute problems like the migraine headache. The edible stuff takes a while to kick in and can even be a little unpredictable about when it will actually start. So that's not so good for that kind of episodic or acute thing, but it's much better for people who need long treatment, right? So they work longer than the inhalation. They work more like eight to 12 hours. So somebody who has back pain, for example, 24 seven, we can get them better pain control using an edible with less exposure to THC overall, because by taking it orally, it works longer. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay, I see. So the different methods with the different symptoms. Exactly. Um, so do you like, do you prefer, or do you use CBD, uh, THC, the minor cannabinoids, terpenes? Is it all a mix that you use? I mean, I guess you're only limited to the products that are in the marketplace for now, but do you like using all of them or? At, I like using whatever them? has data behind it. And unfortunately at this time in history, that's THC. Um, so CBD has become kind of the buzzword and you can buy it on every corner, but that's largely because Mitch McConnell made it legal to sell in 2018, not so much because we know that it's useful or even safe. Um, so I am eagerly awaiting and in fact participating in several trials of CBD to see whether it has safety and efficacy in human beings. But for the moment, it's not something that I think is, is sort of a justifiable um, intervention. And one of the things that people don't realize about CBD is more so than other cannabinoids like THC, CBD happens to interact with a whole bunch of conventional medicines, um, some of which are very dangerous and, and people have never heard of, but some of them can be dangerous and we use them all the time. And the example I like to give is Claritin. Claritin is a, is a uh, non-sedating antihistamine that almost everybody is using at this time of year, uh, at least in the Northern hemisphere. And, um, mm -hmm. and it's a wonderful medicine, but if you take too much of it, it can actually cause fatal heart, rhythm, heart rhythms. Like, oh, Claritin can kill you? Yes, Claritin can kill you if you overdose on it. But if you take a normal amount plus CBD, well, the CBD can raise the amount of Claritin in your blood by blocking its normal degradation rate, right? And so you could be taking Claritin at a perfectly reasonable amount and taking CBD at a perfectly reasonable amount, and somehow the sum of them could be dangerous. Now, we haven't seen or we haven't noticed people 
dying from Claritin and CBD combinations. But I suspect that in part, that's because we're not looking yet because not enough people know to be looking. So I think that there's a lot of risk there that's just not acknowledged and it's flying under the radar. What do we need to do about that? We need to conduct more studies. And those studies I think are um, starting and we'll see, this, right. we'll see this data. We'll get the data we need, but it's, it's not, uh, this, this is the market is advanced beyond that data at this point. And I have a problem with that. So when you talk about other, other cannabinoids um, like CBG, uh, some of the acidics like CBGA, you know, there's interesting lab data on that, but there's almost nothing in human beings at this point. Um, same thing with the terpenes. It's funny because um, we haven't really touched on the fact that um, you, you mentioned that we need more doctors who know this and who are out there and not just me. And so I came to that very same conclusion many years ago and founded the Association of Cannabinoid Specialists. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. And that's uh, oh, now yeah. an international not-for-profit. And part of what we do is we put together courses for physicians and other health professionals to teach them these sorts of things. And we stick very much to the human data side of things. Um, but we got asked to put together some courses on the minor cannabinoids and on the terpenes. And so I went and did that literature review and put together two courses, which are now available. Um, and really, the, the way I began that conversation in these courses is I'm going to review this literature, but you need to know that all of this comes from the test tube and the mouse. So the, the take home message right from slide one is this is not ready for prime time. And then we went through all of this data. There are a ton of data, but they're all, again, in that preclinical state. And they don't really advise us on whether these things are safe or useful for people uh, at this time. So again, like there, it, we want to make sure that we're doing something that's medically appropriate and not simply using tools that are available on the market simply because they're on the market. And I think, you know, we'll get there. It's just we need to be patient with the process of science, which, you know, takes a long time and takes a lot of money. Right, and you're 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 growing with the industry and the knowledge, so that's kind of cool too. I predict in the future that you will be formulating your own products. Uh, you know, you're just at the forefront of it. You know what's working, what isn't. Maybe I, not, I, but. you know what? Um, I've certainly been asked to do that. I find that you know the issue becomes: Do I you know, develop a conflict of interest as somebody who's taking care of patients? So I'm very oh. I'm very cognizant of that. But I do think that um, at some point, uh, you know, I'm sort of the arc of my career at this point is, as you're sort of suggesting, that it needs to become more and more macro. And as much as I love taking care of patients and don't see myself stopping in the near term, but at some point, I do need to be moving towards that sort of broader level where I can have more of an effect on more people's outcomes. And so whether it's formulating product or I spend a lot of my time on political advocacy, trying to help uh, clinicians be able to do a better job for their patients, uh, but you know, through better regulation and stuff like that. So, um, you know, if I had a, a closing message for today, it would be, look, if anybody wants to reach me, I would say first start with my website, which is inhalemd.com. 
And I send people there in part because we have over 200 articles written for lay people, for normal people, if you will, um, and, uh, and a search bar. So you can search for whatever you're interested in. And the chances are there are going to be several articles that will kind of get you familiar with the territory, get your toe in the water. And then if this starts to seem reasonable and you want to reach out to me, then you can do so right through the website. And so if people you know, want uh, to ask a quick question, sure. If people want uh, you know, a consultation and ongoing care, I, I'm happy to do that, honored to do that. Uh, so that's number one. And number two, as we mentioned, the Association of Cannabinoid Specialists, if people are interested in the education or maybe supporting our mission with a few shekels, which we desperately need, then go to cannaspecialists.org. That always comes out out of my mouth a little funny. It's cannaspecialists with an S dot org. Um, and, and there's just a wealth of information about what we're up to and, and how to do this sort of stuff. And also, you know, if you want to find one of our uh, cannabinoid specialist um, members in your neck of the wood to get treatment, there's a directory. So there's a lot of resources there. Wow, thank you so much. It was really nice to meet you. I really enjoyed chatting. I would love to do this again. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.